All right, children ages three to six, you can head to Children's Church, and the workers are waiting there for you in the back. Today we are heading into part 36 of our series in Romans entitled The Outstanding Debt of Love. Would you bow with me and let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active, that they are not dry words from history dead on a page, but instead they are living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, that they will not return void, and that by the power of your spirit, that you can open our minds to understand your truth, and even further, Lord, to live it out through changed lives and hearts. And so we pray that you would do a good work in each one of us as we hear from your word again today. Speak through me, your servant, I pray. May the words be yours. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll begin this morning with a story of two lawyers. Now, you know whenever lawyers are the subject of a story where it's going. So, two lawyers were once waiting in a line in a bank. And while they're waiting in line in this bank to get to the teller, suddenly armed robbers burst through the doors and yell out, everyone, put your hands up. Then, while these armed robbers, a few of them proceeded to go and to take money from the cash drawers from the bank tellers, other robbers lined up the customers who were waiting in the bank. They lined them up against a wall and proceeded to rob them of their, their purses, their wallets, their jewelry, their watches, anything of value. Now, the two lawyers happen to be at the end of this line, and so as they're watching the robbers work their way down the line, taking jewelry and watches and things like that, they know that they're going to get to them eventually. And as they're waiting, suddenly the first lawyer has an idea, and he proceeds to get out his wallet and take out a big wad of cash, and he then jams it into the hand of the second lawyer. Now, the second lawyer holding this suddenly handful of cash in his hand is quite confused, and he whispers to the first lawyer, What's this? To which the first lawyer replied, It's that 250 bucks I owed you. Now we're even. (laughs) Now, in today's text, we're going to talk a little bit about repaying debts. Now, not quite how this lawyer repaid that debt, knowing he was going to be out that money anyways. Well, there's an opening line in verse 8 that simply says, and we'll look at it in Romans chapter 13. Turn there with me, please. Paul says, let no debt remain outstanding. So here the Apostle Paul is very briefly touching on the Christians' duty to repay their financial debts. This is connected to the previous thought in verse 7, where he's talking about the the Christian's uh, civic role in relation to government, where he says, Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If you owe revenue, pay revenue. And then he goes on to say, Let no debt remain outstanding. Now, some Christians have taken this passage to mean, quite literally, that Christians should never take on financial debt of any kind. However, a careful study of the passage, as well as other passages of Scripture, would would indicate to us quite clearly that it's not that a Christian should never, ever take on a financial debt, but rather, Paul is saying that Christians should be timely in repaying their debts and paying their taxes and not leaving debts outstanding, but to instead honor the terms of the loan. And so while Paul is very briefly touching on repaying financial debts, 
He's using this now as a springboard to dive us headlong into repaying another type of debt. Not a financial debt, but a spiritual debt. And that is our outstanding debt of love towards God. Verse 8 continues, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Now, I want you to first take note that though we must pay off our financial debts, Paul says, there is one debt which will always remain outstanding, one that can never be fully repaid, and that is our continuing debt to love one another. In other words, Paul is saying there will never ever come a time where you or I have done that one last loving deed and are now able to say, There, I've done it. I've completely paid off my debt of love and I never have to do a loving thing ever again. We will never reach that moment. That day will never come. And why is that? Well, it's because, as Paul says, it's a continuing debt which seeks to repay an eternal gift. You see, we are not repaying people for their love towards us. We are, in fact, repaying God for his great love shown towards us in making the way of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. In 1 John chapter 4 and verses 10 to 11, John tells us there, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, it says here that He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And does anyone here remember what that term propitiation means? If we go way back in our sermon series, we dove into some of these big terms. Propitiation was one of them. Does anyone remember the meaning of it or even what it references? I'll give you the hint. It starts with the same letters, P-R, referring to the priest. Propitiation refers to a priestly role. And I'll just tell you now, if you've got the wheels churning a little bit, I see some of you are trying to think what this means. Way back in Romans chapter 3, we learned that propitiation refers directly to the mercy seat or atonement covering, which was the lid on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And it was there on the mercy seat that the high priest would bring a bowl of, of blood from the sacrificed animal, often a goat or a, or a ram or a lamb. And this warm blood that's, that's fresh from the sacrificed animal, he would take this into the Holy of Holies to where the Ark of the Covenant resided, and he would then take that blood and sprinkle it over the mercy seat. And so, in doing this, he was providing atonement for the people. And now consider that as this is happening, within the Ark of the Covenant resided the Ten Commandments. The stone tablets that Moses carved out were inside, right underneath the mercy seat. And so there they stood, or sat rather, in constant judgment of the people because they had a complete inability to keep the Ten Commandments or the entirety of the law. It was simply impossible. And so the law stood in judgment. But then when God would look down And he would see there on the mercy seat the blood of the innocent and spotless lamb running red on the covering. Rather than giving the people the wrath, the judgment that their sin deserved for failure to keep the whole law. Rather than giving them what they deserved, he gave them what they did not deserve. He gave them mercy and grace. 
And so that is propitiation. And so propitiation, when it says he sent us his son to be the propitiation for our sins, means that he, he was the blood, or the the blood offering, the sacrifice. He is the one who gave us mercy rather than wrath. And so listen again. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So Jesus, the Lamb of God, the propitiation for our sins, John says that is love. That is love. In a poem, C.S. Lewis once wrote this. Love is as hard as nails. Love is nails. They are blunt, thick, and hammered through the medial nerve of our Creator. Having made us, he knew what he had done, He foresaw our cross and his. Isn't that incredible to consider? Nails driven through the medial nerve of our creator. And that he knew from before the foundation of the earth, the lamb slain from before what he had done. He foresaw our cross and his and still proceeded with his great plan of salvation to become the propitiation for our sins, the lamb that was slain. That is love, John says. And so as we consider that the price God paid for us was not with cold, hard cash, but with the warm, wet blood of his own son, we consider afresh the outstanding debt of love that we owe God. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us and gave his son. In Psalm 116 and verse 12, the psalmist Ask the question, how can I repay the Lord for all the good that he has done for me? How can I repay the Lord? Well, the short answer is, we can't. We cannot. It is utterly impossible to repay the Lord for his gift of love to us through his Son. This debt of love that we owe God is beyond anyone's ability to repay Even if we were given a thousand lifetimes to attempt to repay this debt of love, we would still fall short. Because the price that God willingly paid in order to purchase your salvation and mine is just so costly. Nothing in this earth could ever match up to it or equal it. But though this debt of love can never be repaid in full, both Paul and John point us toward the same response for those who have received it. John says, Beloved, if God so loved us, he doesn't say then we also ought to love God in return, though that would have been an accurate thing to say. He says the application is, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And then consider Paul's words again that we had read already. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. So here, John and Paul both say, love one another. Now, where do you think they got that phrase from? Love one another. Who said it first? Was it it John? Was it Paul who said it first? Well, if you think back to the Gospels, you you may recognize the original source of this phrase. In John chapter 13, in verses 34 and 35, it was Jesus who first said to his disciples, which included John, A new command I give to you, love one another. 
As I have loved you, so you must love one another. So, he says it two times. Love one another, and we see John and Paul both repeating it directly and exactly. And so here we see that our command to love one another is a direct response to the love that Jesus has given us. And further, it was the sacrificial manner in which he loved us that is now the highest example that we are to imitate in our actions towards one another. So the manner in which Jesus loved us is the manner in which we are to love one another. Not conditionally, but unconditionally. Not only when it's convenient, but sacrificially, when it costs us something. Further in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul talked about this further. There Paul wrote, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So there we have it again. He says, imitate this. The life of love, not by some earthly standard, but by the standard which God has set, which is the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, giving himself up for us as an offering and sacrifice. So if love cost God his own son, if that's how costly this love is that's being talked about, then should we be surprised if love costs us something? Should we be surprised when, when our command to love one another comes at a cost? It, it, it demands something of us. Should we be surprised by that? And the answer, of course, is no. The love that we are being called to is not a man-made love. It's not something that we can measure in the terms of, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. That's not what is being talked about here. It is being talked about in the realm of God's love for us out of that we now are called to love each other, one another, in the same manner. And so, we are called to love people who won't love us back. We are called to love people who are very hard to love. We are called to love people who even dislike us. And even harder still, we are called to love people who may even despise and hate us. But this begs the question, how? How can we love someone when we don't feel like loving them, when we don't have warm fuzzies uh, floating around inside towards someone who is hostile towards us, how are we, in practical terms, to love them? Now, in our modern culture, that has primarily, primarily defined love as a good feeling that we have towards someone or something, that, that is impossible. If that is how we define love, that's, that sort of love is impossible because we can't conjure up good feelings towards people who are hostile towards us. It's not, it's not natural within our flesh to do that. So the world's definition of love cannot be what the Bible is talking about. So what is the biblical definition of love? Well, as you likely know, the Greek word that both Paul and John used that we are translating into our English very poor equivalent word of love, it's a catch-all word, right? We say, I love my wife. And in the next breath, you know, I've, I will say things like, I love potato chips, right? Now, is one the same as the other? Well, if it is, then something's wrong, right? Hopefully, when I say I love Leanne, it means something a lot more than when I say I love potato chips, right? 
but we only have one word for it. It's a very, it's a very poor word in the English language, I think, whereas the Greek was much more exact because they had multiple words to define different types of love. And so the Greek word that we translate into the English word of love is the word agape. Now, this was a very precise word. It was not a general word. It was precise. Because agape was actually a new word that was coined by the early Christians, the early church, specifically to describe the love of God defined as this. It is the active love of God the Father for his Son and his people, and the active love of his people toward God, each other, and even enemies. Now, I want you to take note of the phrase, the act of love. It was the act of God loving his son and his people by giving Jesus to be the sacrifice for our sins. This is love. It's active. It wasn't passive. It wasn't just from afar saying, I love you, and then doing nothing. It is talking about the action of God. And so agape is not primarily describing feelings, but rather actions. So what Jesus, Paul, and John were all saying was love in action. This was not a command to love in warm, fuzzy feelings. It was a command to love in action. So doing the actions of love is what is being talked about, regardless of feelings. Obediently doing the actions of love. Now, referring to this exact thing, C.S. Lewis once wrote, Do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. And so it is that agape love does not come after feelings. Rather, feelings come after agape love. Let me say that again. Agape love does not come after feelings, rather feelings come after agape love. And this principle holds true in all relationships, including marriage. The sad fact is that far too many marriages have ended in divorce simply because either husband or wife said something like, I don't feel in love anymore. This is going back to the the world's definition of love. It's about a feeling. And, oh, as soon as I don't feel in love with my husband or I don't feel in love with my wife, then I guess the love must be gone. And so, sadly, many marriages have ended because of this very poor understanding of what love is. But if that same husband or wife would instead have said, I may not feel in love anymore, but I am going to make extra effort to do actions for my spouse that are loving. And if they double down on the effort to do things that are loving, they would not only be surprised to discover that the relationship is now building upward once more rather than going downward, but they might even be shocked to discover that over time, the feelings of love are rekindled after the actions of love are being exercised. So here we see feelings follow the actions, not the other way around in the biblical definition. And so then what are the biblical actions of love? What are these actions, these tangible things that can be done to show love? Well, the answer may come as a little bit of a surprise to you because the actions of love are clearly laid out for us in the Old Testament law. 
So the Old Testament law, surprisingly, is where we find the actions of love. In Romans chapter 13, verses 8 and 10, Paul continues to explain this. He says, whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. He's referring to the Old Testament, the law of Moses. Whoever loves others has fulfilled the law, the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, why did Paul bring up the law again? I mean, wasn't it way back in Romans 6 that he was explaining how the the law is is useless uh, for the believer because it is powerless to save us? You know, he's he's saying that Christians are no longer under the law but under grace. Wasn't that all way back in, in Romans 6? Why is he bringing up the law again? Well, the answer is that Back in Romans 6, he did say that Christians are no longer under the law, but under grace. But there he was referring to the law being useless for earning salvation. So in this way, he was arguing that the law was only a mirror. It could only reveal our sinful condition, but it could not save us from it. Only the grace of God through Jesus Christ could do that. But now, what Paul is doing here by bringing up the law once more is he is referring to the law as still being useful for our moral instruction. That it still has use in this regard to show us the will of God in his heart in moral uh, matters and in affairs of practical significance of how do we live the Christian life. And so here he says it is still useful to look at the law and learn how to live the life of love after we are saved by God's grace. And so here we see that biblical love is far from being some fuzzy or obscure notion that we get to make up for ourselves. Rather, it has clear and objective standards to follow from God's law. And Paul uses four of the Ten Commandments now, and then one law from Leviticus 19, verse 18, to make this point. So of all five of these laws, they are telling us what love does not do. So this first half of love that Paul's talking about is what the actions of love do not look like, and he takes these from the Ten Commandments. The first one is, love does not commit adultery. Love does not commit adultery. The question is, why? Well, because taking someone else's husband or wife, as David did by taking Uriah's wife Bathsheba for himself, it destroyed the sacred bond of marriage. And it disrupts not only the marriage relationship, but the families involved. And it causes immense sorrow and heartbreak and harm to the children and everyone who are connected to it. God designed it to be, to be this union that represented who he is, Father, Son, and Spirit. They become husband and wife, one flesh, and out of the two they become one. And out of the one, a third is born through the miracle of conception. And in this way, they reflect God. And this is disrupted and destroyed irreparably in this way when adultery is committed. Of course, grace still applies. There can be forgiveness for this. But he's saying love in the purest form does not commit adultery. The same holds true for the next commands. For why love does not murder, love does not steal. Because both of those things either commit direct bodily harm to someone else or direct financial harm to others by acting in these ways. So love does not do these things. It does not murder. It does not steal. 
And the fourth command that love does not do is it does not covet. Now, unlike the first three, coveting is not always visible. In fact, most of the time, coveting is invisible because it's an inner attitude where we have a wrong desire to have something that belongs to someone else. But again, if we are loving, Paul is saying here that we will not covet. Instead, we will choose to be content with what we have. And when we see something that someone else has that we don't have that is a great blessing for them, we will choose to be grateful on their behalf for them. And that they have this gift or ability or talent and blessing. And we'll praise God for it rather than being envious of it and wanting it for ourselves. And so while Paul picked just these four of the Ten Commandments that concern our behavior towards others, he then followed Jesus' example by summing up the entirety of the law. And you have to remember that there's the Ten Commandments, but that in the, the aftermath of it, as the Pharisees and the scribes and, and everyone else got their hands on the law, by the time it was all said and done, there were actually 613 laws that encompassed the entirety of the Mosaic Law. So he's saying, rather than going through all 613, I'm going to give you these four, and then I'm going to sum it up with a fifth. And here he quotes Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, where it says, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now here some further clarity is required. For many Christians have gotten the idea that any sort of love of self is wrong. But we have to look again at the phrase, love your neighbor as yourself, or as some say, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so if any sort of love of self is wrong, if that were the case, then it would be completely pointless to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Especially if we were to take this to the extreme position where we in fact hated ourselves and treated ourselves poorly, then what good would that be to treat our neighbor in the same way, right? It just wouldn't make sense. And so you see, the type of love of self that is being referred to here in this biblical sense, both in the Old Testament and in the New, it is not an egotistical or self-seeking sort of a love, but rather it is the kind of love of self that humbly appreciates the fact that you have been fearfully and wonderfully made by your creator in his image and in his likeness. And that further, it recognizes that through faith in Christ, your body is now actually the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so you take care of that body that God has given you, for it is his temple. And therefore, you do things like you feed your body with good food, preferably, right? You dress it with clothing, preferably good quality clothing that fits right and and is going to be according to the elements. And if it's minus 40, you're going to take care of that body by putting on a good parka, right? Sorry for bringing up that specter of what's to come this winter, right? We're going to do other things. Like we're not going to sleep outside in the rain and the snow and in the elements. We're going to shelter this body under a roof that doesn't leak, preferably. And we might even exercise it from time to time with a walk or a workout. Further to that, we will make reasonable efforts to protect our bodies and ourselves from things like being robbed or or cheated or injured or taken advantage of. And, And so if any of those things happen to us, we'll then make good effort to rectify those situations. And so this is the kind of love for yourself that we are commanded to have for our neighbors also, where we actively work to seek 
their needs, and that if they're not being met, we will try to meet them just the same as we would try to meet those needs for ourselves if they were not being met for ourselves. So, if they are hungry, we're going to try to meet that need. If they are thirsty, we're going to try to meet that need. If they are, if they are naked, if they are, if they are homeless, these are the same ways we are to try to meet those needs for them as we would try to meet those needs for ourselves. And so in this way, we are to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And as an interesting footnote to this, it's interesting that secular modern-day psychology has shockingly discovered an interesting phenomenon that the more people focus on helping meet the needs of others, the happier they will be. In fact, I read an article not that long ago where a totally secular uh, um, counselor or psychologist who is also a counselor said that whenever they deal with people with depression, one of their go-to tactics to try to combat depression is to coach this person into finding a way to do things for others that are beneficial for them, that are helpful. And, and there's a direct correlation that the more people put the needs of others ahead of their own, the less depressed they will be, the less anxious they will be, and yes, the happier they will be. And so it's interesting that, that secular psychology has discovered this and might consider it a coincidence And yet the Bible makes it very clear that this is not coincidence. This is built in, this blessing by God's design that when we put others' needs ahead of our own, we are blessed by being happier for it and more content with our own lives. So in summary, contrary to what many people think, living that life of love and living by that life of love and living according to the law They are not at odds with each other, but are in fact inseparably linked. For God's law cannot be truly obeyed apart from love, because love is the fulfillment of the law. So in both what it does not do and what it does. And so what is the greatest act of love of all? The one that we as Christians can give to our neighbors Of course, we've talked about the tangible needs being met, right? If if we see a need, let's try to meet it in the physical. But what about in the spiritual? What is the greatest act of love that we can give to our neighbor? Well, let me phrase it for you in a question. I want you to consider if you were the one, if you were the neighbor who did not know Jesus as personal Lord and Savior. Let's consider just putting yourself in that situation just for this moment in time. Consider that you, you don't know Jesus as Savior, you don't, you don't know the gospel, you haven't put your faith in Christ to save you, and you're just living your life as best you can. But now consider that your next-door neighbor does know Jesus as Lord and Savior. They do know the gospel, they do know the personal intimacy of having a relationship with God. You've reversed the situation, let me ask you this simple question. Would you want your neighbor to tell you about Jesus? Would you? Or would you rather they keep it to themselves and let you live on in ignorance, in oblivion? Would you rather have them risk something in that relationship to introduce you to Jesus? I think we all would say the answer to that question is yes, especially when we consider what's at stake. Eternity is at stake. 
And so the greatest act of love that we can have as neighbors for a neighbor is in the spiritual realm. And often that that opportunity is paved by meeting needs in a loving manner through the physical realm, which opens the door of opportunity to introduce that person in some way to Jesus and to share the greatest gift of love with them. And so may we seek those opportunities and see what God does with it. I have heard an analogy from the field of music that may help us just further understand this completeness of love and the way that God brings beauty out of it when we practice it. The musical scale has only seven basic notes. There are seven basic notes in the musical scale. And often, it's one of the very first things that children will learn in a one-hour piano lesson. In fact, many who are apt with this can learn the scale in one lesson. And yet, of those seven basic notes, even the greatest composers, such as Handel, Beethoven, and Bach, they could not exhaust those seven notes and their variations in an entire lifetime of writing music. The ways that they could order that music, those seven basic notes in different patterns, it was inexhaustible. And in fact, their lives simply ended before their creativity did because they kept writing more and more. Why can there be new music? You would think in the centuries of music that's been written, no new music should be capable of being written, and yet new music is still possible because they have not yet been exhausted. And so godly love is just like this. And as we learn to follow and imitate Christ, at first that life of love may seem likewise basic and insignificant and plain, but as his love grows within us and then pours out of us through everyday actions, God makes something beautiful out of our lives for the blessing of others and for the glory of God with infinite variety and variations. There's another example of the power of God's love in action that I'd share with you in closing. It's taken straight from the news headlines. You might remember this. When on June 17th, 2015, in Charleston, South Carolina, a man named Dylan Roof walked into the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church with a gun during a Bible study, and he opened fire. Eight died at the scene, and a ninth died later at hospital. The survivors and family members of those murdered indiscriminately that day had every right to hate Dylan Roof, to heap nothing but condemnation upon him and demand that he, yes, be executed. And yet the record shows that during the trial, the daughter of the murdered Ethel Lance spoke directly to Dylan Roof and she said this to him. I just wanted everybody to know to you I forgive you. You took something very precious away from me. I will never be able to talk to her ever again. I will never be able to hold her again, but I forgive you, and I have mercy on your soul. You have hurt me. You have hurt a lot of people. May God forgive you, and I forgive you. Now, as if that wasn't enough, another family member of the murdered Mira Thompson likewise went to the stand and said to Dylan Roof, I forgive you, my family forgives you, but we would like you to take this opportunity to repent, confess, and give your life to the one who matters most, Jesus Christ, so that he can change it. 
He can change your ways no matter what happened to you, and you'll be okay. Do that, and you'll be better off than you are right now. My friends, this is what agape love in action looks like. It is powerful, it is touching, and it is undeniable that this can only come from God. For to talk about love is one thing, and so many do only that, but to extend to a murderer not only forgiveness, but also the encouragement to repent and to give his life to Christ so that his soul could be saved. That, my friends, is a tangible demonstration of God's love in its purest form. So no matter what anyone may ever think to the contrary or ever say, in the end, it is God's light that will always dispel the world's darkness. His goodness will always overcome evil. Truth will always expose lies. And yes, love will prevail over hatred. And what this world needs today is not just us talking about love and the way of love, but it needs us living it out in our actions day by day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that this call to love one another It's so simple that even a child can understand it. We thank you for that. But it's also an incredible challenge, Lord, because you didn't tell us, love those you like. Love those to whom it's easy to love. No, you called us to love even our enemies. But Lord, we thank you that this is not an impossible challenge or an impossible task because we are following your example. You showed us the way when you loved us, even when we were your enemies. You forgave us even from the cross when you prayed, Father, forgive them. And you have shown us that this love is not only the ideal to strive for, it is possible to live out. And we have countless examples of believers doing just that. And so today, Father, we pray for the grace and the strength to love others the way that you love us. Not conditionally, but unconditionally. Not with partiality, but with impartiality, Lord. And that, Lord, through this, you would present us with opportunities to share the greatest act of love that we ever can, to tell others about Jesus, to point them to you so that they too can be forgiven, have their souls saved, and enter into the sweetness of a personal relationship with you. And so, Father, to this we again commit ourselves to show your love to the world through our actions, through our words, and through every opportunity you present us with. We know that you will bring something beautiful out of it as we do. In this, we commit ourselves in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Daddy. For a closing song, let's turn to number 67. Number 67, the love of God. Daniel will have a benediction after the second verse. Let's stand to say.
you bow with me for the benediction? Receive now this benediction from Revelation chapter 1. Now unto him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, unto him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen.